Jodcast. School's out for summer. With Jen Gupta, Libby Jones, Mark Perver and some true Jodcast juniors. The Jodcast, July 2010 Extra Edition. Hello and welcome to this unexpected July Extra show. I'm Jen Gupta and joining me today in the studio, making her Jogcast debut, is Libby Jones. Hi Libby. Hi Jen. Hi everyone. So Libby is a first year PhD student here at Jodrell, just finishing her first year. So hopefully she'll be with us for at least two more years and contributing to the Jogcast. Fingers crossed on that. Now I know that we said that there would be no extra shows over the summer with Stuart leaving and I was away. We just didn't have the manpower to put these shows together, but we just couldn't help ourselves. This show is going to be a bit different to normal. Coming up, we have a series of interviews with various Jodrell Bank people. Uh, we cover everything from detecting planets outside of our solar system to general relativity, galaxies, everything. And these interviews were conducted by six work experience students earlier this summer. But first, before all of that, we have an update on the Planck mission that Mark managed to get during the Planck Working Group 7 meeting here in Manchester. We've managed to get the ESA project scientist for Planck, Jan Tauber, to speak to us in between the talks. So thanks for giving up your, your coffee break for us today. I'm not giving it up entirely. So, <laughs> so um, the big question to begin with, for anyone that's not familiar with it, with it, is what is Planck and also what does it mean to be the project scientist for that mission? Well, Planck is a, is a satellite. It's a very big project. It involves a huge number of people a huge number of institutes, a huge number of industrial concerns, etc. It's basically an observatory, which we've put out in space, and it is designed to make an image of the whole sky in uh, microwave uh, light. And uh, with this image of the sky, what we are trying to map is the cosmic microwave background, which is a remnant from the early universe. And what does it mean to be a project scientist? Basically, it's a, it's a kind of a coordination job, I sit in between the European Space Agency, which is managing the, the whole project, and the scientific community, which is actually exploiting the data that we that the satellite produces. And so I try to make sure that everything about the satellite is actually geared towards giving the best possible data to the scientists who are going to exploit it. Yeah, so it's a it's a very uh, big collaboration, and I understand that the data is quite well protected. So within the collaboration, how, how do you deal with it? Does everybody uh, get to see all the data and, and share in that? Not exactly so. I mean, it is, it is uh, uh, you know, the, the, the science we're trying to do is, um, has a great, we, we, is going to have a great impact on the, on the community, we think, and therefore we want to be extremely careful about uh, releasing only things that we're absolutely sure about. In particular, with regard to cosmology, the cosmic microwave background is a very faint signal, and it will take a lot of work, a lot of patience, to be able to calibrate it to the to the really very high level of accuracy that that allows us to to get good science out. And that's why we're trying to be very careful that that uh, the data does not go out to the community in a in a half baked state. We'd like to make sure it is really solidly calibrated and solidly treated so that uh, people do not misinterpret what it actually means. Now, since we do have a lot of people involved in the collaboration, which is in fact a large fraction of the 
community over the whole world. Basically, the all of the people involved have agreed to, you know, obey, if you like, or respect the uh, rules we have set about not, um, uh, wouldn't say leaking out, but divulging the data before we are ready to do that. Some people need to have more access to data than others. Uh, the people who are very closely involved with the data processing centers. We have two data processing centers in the system. They are actually in charge of producing the um, uh, data products that we will deliver to the community when we're ready to do so. And, of course, these people have to have a much closer involvement with the data than most of the science people. The, the scientists who are trying to deal with the data uh, we give them, or the data processing centers give them at regular intervals, and rather frequent intervals, we give them access to the products that we have reduced to the best ability at that time. And that's the data that they work with. So they have a more reduced data set to work with. And with such a, um, a long mission, is it uh, that all the results will be... Um analyzed well the results are obviously analyzed as you go along but will the uh, papers and things be released only after the mission is finished or is it something that will happen as the project goes along we are likely to uh to have several stages of release of papers right now as as you probably know in the process of of getting to the cosmic microwave background we have to deal with the so-called foregrounds which are emissions uh mostly from our own galaxy, but also from external galaxies. Now, this data is uh, is much brighter, first of all. The signals are, are uh, more intense, so they are easier uh, to process and to make sure that they are uh, good quality. And they also contain a lot of very interesting astrophysical information. So it's it's very likely that we will release papers related to these astrophysical areas, so non, not uh, cosmological areas related to the cosmic microwave background, before we do the latter, the cosmic microwave background. In fact, we are, we are planning to release in January of next year, that's not very far away, um, uh, a so-called early release compact source catalog. This is a, a catalog of point-like sources that we find in our maps. And um, we are releasing this with, uh, in particular, with the objective to give people uh, a chance to follow up uh, these sources, the Planck-detected sources, with other observatories, uh, where there may be a, a timeliness aspect, uh, which is important. In particular, the Herschel Observatory, which was launched together with Planck, uh, its wavelength coverage overlaps with Planck to some to some degree. But of course, it is. Uh, it has a much larger telescope and is a, a real observatory. That is, you can point it at a certain part of the sky and you can make very detailed maps. And so we expect that many of the sources that we that Planck detects will then be followed up with Herschel. For that reason, we are giving out this product uh, in January. It will be accompanied by a few papers which already describe the contents of this catalogue. Now there was um, an image released recently, which was um, an all sky, a view of the whole sky as seen by Planck um, after I think a year of the mission. Can you um, tell us how it was produced over the year and 
what it shows people. The the image that we released is in fact a synthesis of uh, several uh, frequencies. So as as you know, Planck basically is like a camera. So it it has an array of detectors that it sweeps across the sky, and uh, these detectors are spread into uh, different frequencies. So they are sensitive to different colors of light. And um, so the detectors that measure the same colors can be combined to make maps of the sky. So in the end, we are able to produce nine different maps of the sky, at uh, each one of them um, covering a, a slightly different uh, frequency or color, ranging from the uh, from uh, radio waves to the to the far infrared. The image that we that we release release is produced by combining several of these channels across the whole frequency range to highlight the different uh, kinds of uh, processes uh, that uh, Planck is sensitive to. That is the the signals that have uh, different spectra. So in particular, we see two big components in the image. We see uh, galactic emission, so emission from our own galaxy, which is in fact dominated by a um, couple of major radiation mechanisms, dust, thermal emission, dust uh, which is basically uh, heated up by uh, the light from stars and re-radiates this light at, uh, in, the, in the far infrared to uh, sub-millimeter wavelengths, and uh, uh, so-called synchrotron radiation, which is basically uh, radiation emitted by electrons which are accelerated in magnetic fields, etc. So, uh, these uh, contribute to the emission from our own galaxy, which dominates a large part of the of the image that we see. And in the background, so mostly at the high galactic latitudes, so well away from the plane of the galaxy, we see the cosmic microwave background, which is uh, radiating in the in the let's say the central frequency channels of Planck mostly. And uh, of course. Uh, in the image, it would appear that the the galaxy uh, covers most of the cosmic microwave background signal, and, and in fact it does. But we we do have techniques which allow us to separate the two uh, uh, types of radiation, if you like, by using the, the spectral signature, and uh, and so we expect that with careful analysis we can recover a map of the cosmic microwave background over the whole sky. So when you get that very weak signal, which is the the light from when the universe first became transparent, how can you then use that to say something about the the state of the universe at that time and 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 constrain cosmological theories? Well, the way we do that is basically we we build possible models of the of the universe at that very early time. They are of course evolutionary models, so they depend on how we think the the universe formed, and uh, basically by comparing uh, different models to the observations, that is to the pattern of intensity that we see distributed on the sky, we can uh, basically try to reduce the range of possible models. Basically, um, what we do is we, the models depend on a, on a set of parameters, which could vary between half a dozen and a dozen. Uh, these are parameters which basically tell what are the major components in the universe and uh, 
uh, how they relate to each other. And so what, what as an end result, that is of comparing what the models predict with what we see on the sky is to essentially try to reduce the range of uh, possible variation of these parameters to as narrow a range as we, as we can. And uh, in fact, that range is, is very narrow indeed. So we can constrain many of these parameters to typically of order 1%, which is extremely accurate by any astrophysical standards. So in fact, uh, this comparison exercise yields us some what people call precision cosmology, because we can um, uh, so accurately um, constrain these, uh, these values, values which describe our universe, in fact. So it's all about the the, pa the pattern of the uh, intensity of the background on the sky, and um, I understand there's something that Planck might be able to establish that hasn't been possible with any previous missions, which is related to gravitational waves in the early universe. Gravitational waves is a bit of a um, hot topic, it seems. So can you explain how that ties into Planck? In fact. Uh... Uh, Planck doesn't only measure the intensity of light, but also its polarization. Polarization carries very specific information, and part of this information could uh, could tell us indeed about um, whether the universe, when it was 380,000 years old, carries the imprint of gravitational waves, which would have been generated by... A phenomenon called inflation, which is today the best uh, explanation we have uh, for the start of the universe, for so the Big Bang. If uh, in our current uh, so-called standard model, which includes inflation as uh, as one of its elements, um, we can uh, predict uh, uh, the effect of uh, of gravitational waves on the on matter, basically. And the imprint it would leave on the cosmic microwave background has a very specific uh, pattern. Now, it's very faint. It's expected to be extremely faint signal, so very difficult to detect. There are indications that that uh, its, its, its amplitude, uh, the amplitude of the signal, could be within the detectability range of Planck. So there are certainly hopes that uh, Planck could uh, detect that. And in that case, there would be, um, I think, um, for the first time, some direct support for the idea of inflation. And so it would be very important for cosmology if, if this could be established. Unfortunately, there is no good um, uh, theoretical reason to... To, um, to define what is actually the level, the amplitude of those signals. As I said, we have some indirect experimental evidence that, that is telling us that the signal could be in the range of uh, amplitudes that it could be detected by Planck. But from a theoretical level, we have no good way of constraining that. So if, if nature is unkind to us, then uh, it will be at a level that is too faint for Planck to detect. And then the question mark will still remain. But the hopes are there, and uh, it would be a great thing. Okay, that's very enlightening, Jan Taube. Thank you very much. Thanks to you, and uh, I hope this is uh, something that we can all look forward to in the next few years to see the, the Planck results and the Planck science. Thanks for that, Mark. 
As we said at the beginning of the show, in late June and early July, there were six work experience students here at the Jodrell Bank Centre for Astrophysics. They got lots and lots of tasks to do and hopefully found out a bit of what it's like to be a professional astronomer. Uh, If nothing else, they learnt how to multitask. (laughs) And one of the tasks that they were set to do was to record an interview for the Jodcast. And we're going to hear all of those interviews now. Hello, my name is Mohamed Abbas and I'm going to interview Paul Woods about... Um, mostly interstellar medium or interstellar dust. What is dust made from? Well, there are different kinds of dust. Um, I should probably explain what dust is for um, for the listeners. Um, so dust in an astrophysical context is more like microscopic grains of, of sand and rock. So it's not really like the dust we find in our homes or anything like that, but it's actually really small um, sand particles. And there are different types of dust, um, depending on what kind of chemistry is going on when uh, when the dust forms. And so you can get um, things like silicate dust, um, which is uh, basically a combination of silicon and oxygen and various other metals like magnesium and sometimes iron as well. In regions where you get lots of carbon, um, then you can have carbonaceous dust, and that's things like graphite and uh, a thing we call um, amorphous carbon, which is basically just... Um, rather than a regular crystalline structure, it's basically just a big tangle of carbon, carbon chains. Uh, okay. Um, then how is it incorporated into our solar system? That's quite a big question because that means you have to understand the whole cycle of matter in a galaxy. Um, so dust is formed in a number of different environments. Most of the dust we know about comes from um, things called AGB stars, and AGB stands for asymptotic giant branch but that's not very illuminating but these are stars that are older than the sun these are low mass stars so they're they're less than around eight solar masses and basically these these stars are fusing um, heavier elements in their cores things like carbon and oxygen and they get to a stage where the material in the core is sort of mixed about throughout the entire star and um, it rises to the surface and as it rises to the surface pulsations of the star sort of drive it off the surface and then it, because it's moving away from the surface of the star, it cools down a bit. And uh, that's when um, when dust forms, basically it condensates out of this um, hot plasma. So this dust forms in the atmosphere of these stars. And so uh, basically this all this material streams out of the star and ends up um, in the interstellar medium, which is what we generally consider as space. And uh, it ends up in these big clouds called interstellar clouds. And then... Uh, these clouds have various different uh, regions of different density, and so uh, they become gravitationally attracted and uh, for, form things like um, things called cores. And now, getting to the point of your question, <laughs> these uh, these cores collapse, and um, that's when you get a, a new star forming. And so, basically, this new star, um, as the cores collapse, it, it sort of spins up a bit. Yeah, it gets faster and faster and rotating, um, and it, it sort of um, it spews out this this disk around the star of um, of dust and gas. So basically, the dust that we see in the solar system today is a remnant of this um, this disk called a protoplanetary disk, and um, uh, basically that's a remnant of whatever was in the in the interstellar cloud that the the solar system formed from. Okay, thanks. And um, is there anything else that's that's formed from these clouds? 
Well, the, the main things that we see are stars because obviously they, the, the material inside these, these cores ignites and basically we can see the emission, uh, from them as they, uh, as they warm up. But the, the, the stuff that doesn't make it into stars, um, is still out there, um, as clouds, clouds of gas and dust in, um, in space. And often, uh, we can see these basically by looking at a bright object behind the cloud. We see, um, that the bright objects are sort of, um, extincted. Basically, they're, they're a bit darker than they should be. And so we know that there's something in front of them that's, uh, blocking out the light. And so we can, we can look at this, um, we can look at the light and particularly the light that's blocked out and find out, um, what kind of materials are in these clouds, what kind of molecules and what kind of dust. Thanks. Thanks to that, Paul and Mohammed. That's a topic very close to my own heart, as I'm very interested in dusty systems, both in our galaxy and in our local galactic group. So next up, we have the Jogcast's very own Mark Perver. Hi, I'm Tanya, and I am interviewing Mark Perver on pulsars and double pulsars. So, Mark, what are pulsars? That's quite a big question, so I thought I'd start off with how they form. They come from very massive stars larger than our sun. So if you go right back to the beginning, you start off with a big cloud of gas that collapses into a a very large star, and we're talking something that's perhaps 10 times the mass of our sun. These live for perhaps 10 million years, which on a time scale of, of stars is quite short. They sort of live fast and die young. They're very big, they're very hot, and they quite quickly run out of the material that they're fusing in their cores to produce energy. And once they stop producing heat, gravity causes the star to collapse, and eventually you get to a point where right in the core of the star the protons and the electrons in the atoms are actually forced together and you end up with a core that's all neutrons. It's this neutron core that ends up as the pulsar. The rest of the star kind of bounces off it in a, in a supernova, a huge explosion, and then all that you're left with is this very small, very dense core, mostly composed of neutrons, packing together something like the mass of the sun into a, a ball that's about 20 kilometres across. So it's incredibly dense and very, very hot as well. The way that we see a pulsar as opposed to just a neutron star is quite unusual and it was quite unexpected when, when it first happened. The neutron star is sort of a giant magnet with a north and south pole and because it's become so compact it's spinning very quickly, perhaps several times every second. And this rotating magnetic field causes particles to be ripped off the surface of the neutron star and these are sort of funneled to the magnetic poles and they then emit mainly radio waves. So you have a sort of lighthouse effect where you have these two magnetic poles and a couple of radio beams. And as the pulsar spins, the radio beam happens to sweep past the Earth. And so we see a, a very regular train of, of radio pulses, and that's why we call them pulsars. So um, how are double pulsars formed then? A double pulsar is something that's formed when, instead of just having one star on its own, it has a companion. So you have two stars in a binary system. That means they're going around each other. One of them then experiences a supernova and ends up as a pulsar, with the other one still going around it. It then actually starts to sort of consume the other star. It starts dragging the mass right off the outside of the other star. And that makes the pulsar that's there first spin faster and faster. So it ends up going around maybe hundreds of times a second. And then sometime later, the other star, which is also massive, also has a supernova and also becomes a neutron star. So then at the end of it, you've got these two neutron stars going around one another, one of them spinning really fast and one of them spinning a bit slower. 
And in the case of a double pulsar, of which we only know of one example, both of these neutron stars have radio beams that sweep past the Earth, so we can see these two pulsars together in the same system. Could the force between a double pulsar, could they ever collapse and cause a black hole? Yes, and we think they will in about 85 million years from now. So it'll be a while. Because they're orbiting very close together, they go around each other about every two and a half hours. So they're really, really close together. But they're both very massive, slightly bigger than the sun, each of them. And according to Einstein's theory of relativity, that means that the system should be giving off gravitational waves. They're described as like ripples in space-time. And they carry away energy from the system. So gradually, the pulsars spin closer and closer together, and eventually they will um, coalesce. And at that point, it's not quite certain. You, you may just get another a bigger neutron star, but it's possible it'll tip it over into something that's so massive that it will just completely collapse into a black hole. Um, so what is general relativity? That's, that is another quite a big question. But essentially it's a theory of space and time and gravity. In the theory that we're more familiar with, which is Newton's theory of gravity, space and time are like this stage on which events happen and the, and the space and the time themselves never change. But in relativity, space and time are things that can be curved and distances and times between events can seem different depending on your frame of reference. And specifically in relativity, it tells us that objects curve space-time with their gravity, and this is why other objects then are influenced by them. So relativity is telling us that, that all mass is actually curving space and time around itself. So back to pulsars. Oh, what's the biggest and closest pulsar to the solar system? The most massive pulsar that we know about we think is about two and a half times the mass of the Sun. The closest one is a different one. There are a couple of pulsars that are about 500 light years from Earth. That's about 100 times further away than the nearest star. It's a similar distance to many of the stars that you see in the sky. So what kind of mass and density are pulsars and double pulsars? The double pulsar, because of its special characteristics with these two pulsars going round one another, we've been able to measure the masses quite accurately. So they're about 1.25 times the mass of the Sun and about 1.35 times the mass of the Sun. Elsewhere, the lightest, if you like, pulsar that we know about is just a little bit less than, than the mass of our Sun. And as I said, the heaviest is about 2.5 times. So there's a bit of a range there. The density is something that we don't know that well because theories of matter that we have aren't extensive enough to tell us exactly what is going on inside a pulsar. A typical density, if you can get your head around such a number, is something like a billion metric tons per cubic centimetre. I can't really get my head around that. It's something like ten times the mass of all the people on Earth crammed into the size of a teaspoon. So it's really not something anyone can imagine, I think. Um, how rare is a pulsar or a double pulsar? We know about approximately 2,000 pulsars and they're all within our own galaxy. We think that there are pulsars all throughout other galaxies, but they are too weak at the moment for us to detect. In terms of double pulsars, where, where we can see two pulsars in a binary system, there's only one that we know about, and that was quite a lucky find. People hope to find more of those, but at the moment there's just one out of the 2,000. What kind of um, waves does a pulsar emit in the electromagnetic spectrum? Well, they emit if you take all of them together, quite a wide range of different frequencies. We mostly see them in the radio spectrum, which is low frequency. 
That's how we pick them up at places like Jodrell Bank with a big radio telescope. But there are some pulsars, they tend to be either young ones or ones with a really very strong magnetic field that emit at much higher frequencies. So there's some that can be picked up in visible light, quite a few in X-rays and some even in gamma rays. So that's way up much higher in the electromagnetic spectrum. So um, what colour are pulsars? And That is a good question. I'm not sure anybody has really thought about what colour it would be to our eyes. The reason is that being very hot, they're thought to be maybe a million Kelvin, which is about a million degrees centigrade. They would mostly be emitting X-rays, so we wouldn't see very much coming out of them at all. I suspect that they'd be emitting roughly equally over the visible range, so they'd probably be a dim whitish colour, perhaps a little bit blue. How long does each pulse usually last? Pulsars rotate between about 700 times every second for the fastest ones, up to about once every 8 seconds for the slower ones. Within that, you don't see a pulse the whole time. You tend to see it for a certain fraction of the pulse period, maybe something like 5% of it. But if you have a pulsar where it's spinning axis is uh, is aligned with its magnetic axis and that happens to be pointing towards the earth you can see it for sometimes almost the whole pulse period so are pulsars dangerous to us on earth in any kind of way well they would be if there was any nearby (laughs) fortunately there aren't Uh, there's none near enough to us to be dangerous at all but if you had one where the sun was it would be a bit of a hazard as i explained they emit a lot of x-rays so you really wouldn't want to be near that They also have streams of charged particles coming off them with a lot of energy that you also wouldn't really want to be in the way of. In terms of gravity, if they were at the distance of the sun, we would feel their gravity similar to what we feel from the sun. However, because they're so small, you could get very, very much closer to them than you can get to the sun. And if you did do that, if you got to the surface, you'd be experiencing a gravitational force of something like 100 billion times more than what you feel at the surface of the Earth. So unfortunately, you'd very quickly become part of the neutron star. So when was the first pulsar discovered? That was in 1967, so they've only been known about for around 40 or 45 years now. How do you monitor and find these pulsars? What kind of telescopes do you use? Um, Mainly radio telescopes. There are uh, places like Arecibo and uh, Jodrell Bank where we use very large metal dishes to uh, reflect the radio waves. When you're looking at the higher energy ones, there are some space telescopes that look at pulsars such as Fermi, which is a gamma ray telescope. And there are X-ray telescopes also in space like Chandra and XMM-Newton. How do you calculate the rate at which a pulsar is spinning? Well, there's a whole technique for, for timing pulsars, which means measuring exactly when their pulses arrive. So to begin with, of course, you don't know how fast a pulsar is spinning. And quite often you can't actually pick up the individual pulses. It's only when you average many pulses together that you can actually see the the blip of the pulsar. So first of all, you start off by guessing many different values for the rotational period. And if you see something at one particular period, then then you've found the period of, of that pulsar. And then after that, you go on timing it, adding the pulses together with that period and looking for for when they arrive. Are there a lot of scientists out there that specialise in this kind of astronomy? There's not that many, actually. 
I think there's about 50 that would maybe call themselves pulsar astronomers around the world, and perhaps another 50 that would say that they work on the theory of neutron stars. So altogether, maybe there's 100. How aware do you think that the general public are on pulsars and astronomy in general? And is there anything that's going on to support this, like summer camps? I don't know of any pulsar summer camps, although it sounds like an interesting idea. We try and um, let people know about about pulsars and, 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 and what's going on in astronomy in general. I think that pulsars themselves, are, people are quite aware of them because there's been things that have been named after pulsars like cars and digital watches and stuff. So I think people have a bit of an idea about that. In terms of astronomy, you can go to places like the Museum of Science and Industry if you happen to live in Manchester and they have events like Meet the Scientist or things like that where you can, where you can ask questions of astronomers. Or, of course, you can go to the Jodrell Bank Visitors Centre where you can see 3D movies and you can also talk to astronomers in, in the Ask an Astronomer sessions. A lot of universities do have outreach programs where people will go and talk about their uh, subject in an informal sort of setting and there's quite a few people doing that in, in astronomy. So what kind of uh, basic level do you think is needed for the general public to understand about pulsars? I think to understand it on a basic level you don't really need to know anything before you start. I don't think you need any particular mathematical knowledge. A lot of the numbers to do with pulsars are something that no one can really get their head around anyway. Obviously, the more levels of education you go through, the, the more deeply you can understand it. But I think to appreciate what they are, you don't need to have any prior knowledge at all. Oh, thank you for answering my questions. Thanks. Thanks for that, Mark and Tanya. And if you want to know more about pulsars, it's a topic that's been covered on the Jogcast quite a bit. Uh, the very first Jogcast interview, way back in January 2006, was with Michael Kramer, who told us all about the double pulsar system. And in June 2007, we also had an interview with Dame Jocelyn Bell Burnell, who was one of the people who actually discovered pulsars way back in the 60s. So one thing that pulsars can be used for is to test general relativity. So going on with that, we have John Pearson, who's going to talk us all about these crazy ideas. I'm Don Visser, and I'm here with John Pearson, a PhD student here at Manchester University. And uh, I've got a couple of questions for you. How are you doing today? I'm all right, yeah. I'm good, yeah. How are you? I'm, uh, I'm doing not too bad. Um, so what is your field in physics? I do theoretical cosmology. So cosmology is like the study of the universe as a whole, and theoretical means sort of just crazy maths and crazy ideas and stuff like that. What's your favourite crazy idea in physics? Uh, I think uh, general relativity and stuff like curving space-time and how light moves through space, space-time and how planets move and the curvature of the universe and stuff like that, it's, it's just quite cool. So how exactly does the universe get curved? What curves the universe? Right, so the universe is sort of... is You can sort of think about it like a rubber sheet, almost. And a, a rubber sheet will sort of bend and stretch if you do something to it. So the universe is the rubber sheet, and the stuff in the universe is the thing that's making it curve. So the presence of matter, the presence of stuff like you're made of, and like stars are made of, they curve space-time. They curve the universe. It makes it curved. <laughs> okay, so... Bigger things curve it more, then. Yeah, so uh, the amount of curvature is directly related to how massive the object is. So it could be really small but very massive, like a neutron star, or really big but quite massive still, like a like a normal star. 
or a black hole or something. But a black hole is very small, but they curve it a lot because they're very massive. Um, briefly describe what the standard model is and what its flaws are at the moment. Right, yeah. So the standard model of cosmology basically says that the universe is homogeneous and isotropic. So homogeneous means it's the same everywhere. So that means that as you walk around the universe, you don't, nothing changes as you walk around. And the second thing is that it's isotropic. So isotropic means it doesn't matter which direction you look, it's always the same. Um, now, both of those assumptions um, underlying that model, they're obviously only assumptions. They're, they're sort of a guess. They're not correct because you're here. Basically, if, if you weren't here, if there's nothing else in the universe, then it'll be fine. But there's loads of stuff in the universe. But those are, they are correct on the very, very largest scale. So like sort of a few hundred megaparsecs, which is a really, really big distance. This sort of holds true. And so what it looks like in those sort of scales is sort of more like a foam. It's like if you get a sponge and sort of look at it, it sort of looks roughly the same amount of holes or sponge. It doesn't have like a preferred direction or anything. Whereas if you were to look at a galaxy like the Milky Way or something, you'd see spiral arms and all sorts. So you can see stuff and directions and stuff like that. Whereas a standard model says those things don't exist, that, that it's completely homogeneous. Yeah, so the, the flaws of the standard model uh, basically come from observational uh, inferences. So, like, basically you get some telescopes, you just point them at the stars, at the universe, and then you get the data and you pull it through the standard model. And basically what you find is that uh, you have to invent 96% of the universe. So the 96% is sort of split into two parts. One you part you call dark energy, and the other part you call dark matter. So the 4%, which we do know about, is just what we're made of. Like, it's called baryonic matter. So, like, the stuff of protons and neutrons and atoms... All of that, that's only 4% of the universe. There's 96%, which we have absolutely no idea what it is, what it what it looks like, what it feels like, and stuff like that. It just has to be there to make our observations within this standard model correct. So is there any way of testing for dark energy or dark matter, or are scientists going to try and replace the standard model with a new model that'll work? Well, I think there's work going on in sort of both directions. So one, they're trying to actually detect dark matter. So there's lots of people building lots of experiments to try and detect dark matter because it should be all around us. It's just it's very difficult to detect. So they're trying to do that. And they're trying to do a similar thing with dark energy as well. But the problem is that there's no real sort of consensus on what dark energy is. So what sort of crazy physics it is that describes dark energy, no one really understands that properly. And the other sort of aspect is to change that standard model. And a lot of work's going into that, and that's some stuff that I'm doing myself, actually, as well. Like I'm, I'm trying to figure out other models of the universe which doesn't, which don't necessarily require dark energy. Okay. Um, what's your view on time travel, and will it happen, and how will it happen, and how far in the future do you think it could happen? So time travel, it already happens, actually, and there's, there's already been time travellers. So all the guys that went to the moon they all travelled in time, very small amount of time, but they all travelled in time. And that's because they travelled at a speed that was different to ours. So whenever you travel at a speed different to someone else, you travel in time relative to that person. So everyone in some sense is a time traveller. It's just the amount of time by which you've travelled differently is very, very small. So to actually do it properly, what you need to do is you get into a big rocket, you shoot yourself away really quickly, and you come back again. Now the person that went on the rocket experiences less time than the person that stays on the earth so the person on the rocket is a time traveler and so sort of to make that viable you just got it's sort of technology you sort of got to get good rockets to be able to do that 
Um, so that's, I suppose it's quite difficult, but I have absolutely no idea when they're going to start doing it. I mean, it's the stuff of science fiction. Like, it sounds cool, but it's it's quite difficult to do practically. So, what is what are you looking forward to most in the future? Solving the problems of today, or coming up, or finding new problems and having to solve them? Well, in general, when you start to solve the problems of today, you start to uncover new problems. Actually, so when you do science, you don't tend to just answer loads of answer loads of questions you sort of answer questions but while you're answering them you find out new problems you find out sort of new levels of stuff we don't really understand properly so by answering the questions of today we uncover the questions of tomorrow so which is pretty cool actually like it keeps a lot of scientists in their job which is nice um so what am i most looking forward to um i suppose uncovering more questions uncovering more things we don't understand properly and then trying to understand them yeah. Thanks, John, for answering my questions today. No problem. Thanks for that, John and Dominic. Now, before Stuart left, one of his final Jogcast tasks was that he recorded an interview with John about his crazy theoretical research. So hopefully that interview will make it onto a show very soon. Now the microphone is being turned on to our very own Jen Gupta, who's being interviewed about galaxies. Hi, I'm Justin Jones, and I'm here with Jen Gupta, and uh, she's going to talk about galaxies. Hi, Jen. Hi, it's quite strange being on this side of the table. <laughs> Roll reversal. So, so first, most important thing: what is a galaxy? Right. So you think that that question is quite simple. What is a galaxy? It's a yeah. collection of stars. But you've got to remember, there's not only stars in there. There's um, dust and gas, and we think that a lot of the galaxy is made up of dark matter. So it's basically a collection of all these things that is bound together by the gravity of everything else in the same way that you know our solar system the the moon is connected to the earth by gravity and then we go around the sun and that's all held together with gravity it's basically a very much bigger version of that so in the milky way we've got all these stars gas dust dark matter all orbiting around in the same way that the solar system goes around so in a galaxy, you average about 10 to the 11 stars, which is... That's a lot of stars. That's a lot of stars. Yeah. That's a one with 11 zeros after mm. it. And a quite a nice coincidence, well, we assume it's a coincidence, is that there's about that number of galaxies in the universe, which is a nice little number to play with. Yeah. So like I said, there's, there's lots of different types of galaxies. Um, our own galaxy is what's called a spiral galaxy. Um, actually, it's a barred spiral. So you've got a central bulge, which has a lot of stars in it but that are very close together. And then you have this kind of bar of material that's coming out from the bulge. And then there are spiral arms that are going round. The problem with the Milky Way is that because we're within it, it's actually quite hard to know what the Milky Way looks like. And no one quite knows how many spiral arms we've actually got. Depending on where you look, we've got two or we've got four or we've got six. No one actually knows. And then dark matter is about 70% of the galaxy's mass. And they, there's, it's believed that there's this massive, like, halo of dark matter that extends out really far. And so maybe we should talk about some numbers. Um, so the central bulge is about 10,000 light years across. And then the stellar disks, so all these spiral arms and everything, those go out to about 100,000 light years. Um, the bar that's coming across the central bulge out to the, arms is about 25,000 light years and then the dark matter which is the biggest thing of all that goes out about three times more than than the stellar than what we see in stars so it goes out about, to about 300,000 light years. Our position in the Milky Way is about 
26,000 light years from the centre, so we're out on one of the spiral arms. This is what makes it difficult to know what's in the Milky Way, because when we look out, we're looking through the arm we're in, we're looking all the way through that to the centre and out again. So if you go outside and try to look at the Milky Way, you have to be in a very dark place. But if you go outside and have a look, you just kind of see this um like bar of of stars that's going like up across the sky, and that's you looking at the centre of the looking through the centre of the Milky Way in the plane of of the Milky Way. So, so I guess is that where the, that's where the name comes from then? The yeah, Way, yeah, that's where that's where the name comes from. So the way that we um the way that we kind of find out about our galaxy is you can see how fast everything's moving with respect to us, and then obviously if everything goes round in the same amount of time, the things that are further away have to be going slower than the things that are close in. But it's quite hard to distinguish between different kind of bits of the Milky Way. So uh, you're talking there about a spiral galaxy or the Milky Way being a bad spiral galaxy. So so what other types of galaxies can you get? Obviously other galaxies are easier to classify. We can see the entire yeah. thing. We normally split them into three types of galaxy. You've got your spirals, your ellipticals and irregular galaxies. So one nice way of dividing them up is what's called um, the Hubble scheme or the Hubble sequence. And if you imagine like a tuning fork that you use to um, tune a musical instrument, so you've got a line and then you've got two prongs coming off it. So in the line, we have elliptical galaxies and these go from what's called E0 to E7. So the number tells you how elliptical it is. So the E0s look like a football or probably should say basketball in case there's any Americans listening. And then as you go along to E7, they get more elliptical and then E7s go kind of like a squash rugby ball or something like that. Then after the E7s, you have what's called the S0. Now these kind of look like spiral galaxies, but they don't have the spirals. They've got the central bulge and then they've got a disk of material around them. And then coming off the S0, you've got two prongs of spiral galaxies. And the top ones are called kind of normal spiral galaxies and the bottom ones are bars. So these go, the top go from S, A, S, B, S, C, and then the bottoms go S, B, A, S, B, B, S, B, C. Going from A to C, the arms kind of get less tightly wound. So S, A's are really like, the arms are really tightly wound in, and then S, C's are kind of open up. And the bulge also gets less luminous and less big as you, as you go across. So that's a way of, um, of classifying them. Um, quite, one quite good project that is going on is something called Galaxy Zoo, where uh, members of the public are actually classifying all these galaxies and they're now using um, Hubble images to do this. So if anyone's interested, <laughs> then they should go and check that out. Which galaxy is our nearest neighbour? I thought this was a really easy question when you gave me your questions. The majority of astronomers, you go and ask them, they'll say Andromeda, which is a galaxy, it's a spiral galaxy like our own. It's actually, we study it quite a lot to um, to work out what's going on in the Milky Way. So all those nice kind of pictures you see of the Milky Way, that's kind of been inferred from, from Andromeda. And Andromeda is, I think, two and a half million light years away from us. But that's not actually the closest. It's the closest spiral galaxy to us, and it's moving towards us, so it's going to get closer to us. But closer in than that, there are what's called the Large Magellanic Cloud and the Small Magellanic Cloud, and these are two irregular galaxies. Um, it was originally thought that they were like gravitationally bound to the Milky Way and that they were kind of orbiting us, but actually studies recently have shown that they just happen to be coming past us. So in the past, one of those three would have been said to be the closest. But recently, they've actually found um, two more dwarf galaxies 
that are really close to us. Sagittarius, the Sagittarius Dwarf Galaxy held the title for a while. But a few years ago, they found the Canis Major Dwarf Galaxy. And this one is so close, it's actually within the Milky Way. So it's um 42,000 light years away from the centre of the galaxy. But it's actually on the side of us. It's on the same side as us. So we're actually closer to this galaxy than we are to the centre. Which is quite strange to get your head around. There's some nice pictures of it on the internet that we should probably link to in the show notes to to show this off. So Andromeda, a lot lot of people say it's the closest one and it's coming closer. So how big is Andromeda? Oh, Andromeda, talking in size, I think it's about double the size of us. Um, But estimates of the mass have put it anywhere between like at the same mass as the Milky Way, but or about two times as much. And it's approaching us, so um, <laughs> going to collide with it. Yeah, eventually um, we're going to collide with it. Um, so kind of estimates of how fast um, Andromeda is moving towards us kind of vary depending on who you talk to, but people say it's about 300,000 miles per hour that it's coming towards us, which is, again, a speed I can't really get my head around. But... Basically, it is going to collide, even if it's not on a path at the moment that will directly hit us. The gravity between the two galaxies will mean that it eventually will. So it might like do a pass, it might come through us and then come back again, but eventually the two galaxies will merge together. It's estimated that this will be in about three to four billion years. The worrying thing is that that is within the sun's lifetime. So... Depending on what models you look at, the sun might actually end up being more being bound to Andromeda instead of bound to us during one of these passes, and then it could get flung out of the galaxy. God knows what's going to happen, whether humans will be alive then. So there's quite a lot of simulations that are going on that try to predict what's what's going to happen with this. Um, but the other way around you can look at it is that there's actually a really nice pair of, of interacting spiral galaxies that are called they're, they're called the mice. I can't really see that they look like mice, but that's what they're called. And there's some really good um, Hubble images of these. So you can actually kind of take those and work backwards to kind of see what's happened. And they think that they've done one or two passes already, and that's kind of disrupted a lot of the galaxy, and they keep on coming back, and eventually they'll form a giant spiral galaxy. But then depending on who you talk to, the Milky Way and Andromeda will either form a giant spiral galaxy or a giant elliptical. I think it's... It's something that's quite, it's very hard to model galaxies because of, um, no one quite knows what the dark matter is doing and where it is. And it's very hard to simulate this, but it will happen. We will collide with Andromeda. But there's, there's plenty of time to prepare for that. So, uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We can, we can go and find another star yeah. or another planet to live on. So, uh, well, I think that's the end of my question. So, okay. That's it. Okay. Thanks, Jen. Thank you for that. That was weird. <laughs> Thanks for that, Jen and Yestin. So what was it like to have the, the microphone turned on yourself? It was very, very strange. Uh, I think it was even more strange because galaxies as a whole aren't actually what I work on. I work on active galactic nuclei, which are galaxies where there's a lot more emission from the centre than you'd expect. So it was quite strange for me. I actually had to go and look a lot of stuff up on the internet before I did that interview. But it was a lot of fun and it was nice to be on the other end to experience that I think it was probably good for me and someone else who had the tables turned on him was Adam Averson who was interviewed about his research 
Hi, I'm Rosie Farthing. I'm, I'm asking Adam Averson some questions today. Adam, how are you today? I'm good, thanks. Okay, well, your field of research is about massive stars. Yep. Currently, what is the accepted star formation model? So you start out with a giant molecular cloud, which is uh, about 20 to 100 parsecs uh, size, and they're cold. They've got temperatures of around 10 to 15 Kelvin, and they contain about a million solar masses of matter, mainly molecular hydrogen and dust and things like that. And within these giant molecular clouds, there's a, a substructure called clumps, which are the regions of star formation. And then within these clumps, there's an even smaller substructure called cores, which are the sites of the individual star formation or possibly binary star formation. So within these cores, they, they're gravitationally bound and they'll begin to collapse. And as they collapse, the temperature and pressure increases. And that's when you get something called a protostar, which has sufficient density to carry on collapsing. But okay, and that's not quite a star yet. Not quite a star. It's not got enough mass and the temperature is it's too low a temperature to be a star a proper star and because everything in the universe is spinning you end up with an accretion disk so there's matter falling onto the disk and then it moves through the disk and onto the star and the star increases in mass and it keeps collapsing and getting denser and hotter and the pressure increases and then eventually you get to a temperature sufficient that hydrogen fusion starts and that's when your your star is a star it moves on to what's known as the main sequence. Okay, so um, how long does all this take? How long does it take to create a star? It takes, of the order, 10 to the 5 years, so 100,000 years. Okay, and is this the standard model? Is this the current, well... This is the uh, the currently accepted model for sort of low-mass stars, so things below 8 solar masses. And you're working on above 8 solar masses? Yeah, so the, the massive stars or the high-mass stars. Uh, when I say massive, I don't mean size-wise, I mean mass the amount of matter and at that well mass uh, do any problems occur in the standard model when you get to uh, stars above eight solar masses which is what i study the, the sort of this model breaks down because the stars should start fusing hydrogen before they uh, reach their final mass the fusion the energy created during that should tend to repel the accreting matter so it, it should stop accretion happening so you know it can't get any bigger except stars up to about 100 solar masses or more have been seen and they're the extreme size so you get things like 8 to 10 and 20 all over the place so this halting to accretion is quite a big problem in that we do see these stars and this is what makes it interesting to study. There are a couple of theories which could allow these stars to uh, exist so you could have higher accretion rates so you'd have the same kind of formation mechanism but the matter's falling onto the star quicker so you, you you grow faster and you end up with a bigger star before it has its chance to uh, start radiating. There's something called competitive accretion because massive stars tend to form in the middle of star formation clusters, so the the gravitational potential in the centre would be higher, so there's more matter falling in, which is similar to a higher accretion rate. There's just more available matter, which would give it the chance to, to accrete this matter. And then there's the exciting idea of two sort of medium-sized stars hitting each other and forming one massive star. Okay. Um, so since these are so far away from us, what methods do you use to survey them? Well, the typical massive star formation regions are further than five kiloparsecs away, which is quite far away. And, um, and what is a parsec? Parsec is 3.0856 times 10 to the 16 metres. Okay. <laughs> and a kiloparsec is that times 1,000. So these stars are... Um, forming within these giant molecular clouds which are dusty and so therefore obscure our ability to see them in the optical light which means we can we have to move to different wavelengths so 
where I work primarily is with radio observations. Um, I work on something called the Methanol Multibeam Survey, which is using something called a MESA to act as a signpost for massive star formation because there's these this particular species of mesa with methanol mesas which are uniquely associated with massive star formation so if you find one you've got a massive star forming nearby and so we a few years before i started my phd set about using the uh, the parks radio telescope down in new south wales in australia to survey the entire galactic plane looking for these methanol mesas and we have now completed the survey with parks and we found 300 new ones and surveyed over 800 existing ones as well. So, How do you find mazes in the sky? So we just use the, the, the radio telescope down there, set up at a frequency of um, 6.7 gigahertz, which I think comes out at around 4 centimetres at wavelength, and you just track across sections of the galactic plane and wait for the signal of that particular frequency to be picked up. Okay, and what is a natural maser? So a, a natural maser, in an astrophysical sense, it's a region of the interstellar medium which is acting outside of local thermal equilibrium, which is getting into dangerous <laughs> degree-level science, which basically acts as an amplifier for particular wavelengths of radiation. So if you think of it as like a laser, but with an M, so instead of light amplification by the stimulated emission of radiation, think microwave even though that the maser name does cover uh, objects like the methanol maser that are radio. Okay, so um, where are you hoping your research leads you? Well, I'm, I'm currently using the methanol multibeam survey data and some infrared data using the Spitzer Space Telescope and also some, some molecular um, data that we took again down in parks. This was of uh, the ammonia molecules emission at 23 gigahertz from which you can effectively take the temperature of uh, the molecular environment. Okay. Um, so combine all those things and try and build up a picture of the environments of these forming massive stars. Uh, and through this, hopefully, try and give some idea of how the stars are forming and build up a picture of the actual formation mechanism. Okay. Thank you very much, Adam, for coming to talk to us today. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for that, Adam and Rosie. Now, this is the first extra show that we've had for a couple of months, and as a result, we haven't managed to have Ask an Astronomer. Please keep sending all your questions in that you want to be answered, because we'll be getting back on schedule with that. But in this show, we've got Dave Jones, who has been on the Jogcast before. Tim is actually one of his supervisors, and one of the work experience students put a whole bunch of random astronomy questions to him. Hi, I'm Emily Salmon. I'm going to interview Dave Jones, and he's going to kindly answer all my questions on the Earth and um, space in general. So the first one, how far away is the edge of space? Okay, so I've answered this, in, I've taken this in two different ways. Cool. Right, because I didn't know whether you meant the edge of space in terms of if you left Earth, how far would you have to go before you hit space? Oh, okay. And how far would you have to go to reach the very edge yeah. of okay. space? Yeah, I like that. So we'll go with both of them. I'll answer the big one first. <laughs> right, so, uh, so originally, naively, I thought, okay, so the universe is nearly 14 billion years old. Cool. So the edge of the universe that we can see is the speed of light times 14 billion years. And that's how far away, that's the furthest thing that we can see. I like that's very logical, actually. Yeah, so that turns out that that's actually uh, a one with 23 zeros after it in kilometres. So it's a fair distance. That's cool, yeah. (laughs) But... I forgot to think that space has been expanding since the start of the universe. So if you actually take into account that, 
that space has been expanding. Lots of maths. You actually see four times further than that. So the universe is actually four times... The observable universe is four times bigger. Excellent. That's cool. Than if it was just always been there. Brilliant. Okay, so then the start of space, that's a little bit tougher because this is a bit semantics. So around about 90% of the atmosphere in terms of mass is within the first 16 kilometers after you leave Earth. But the Federation Aeronautic Internationale <laughs> defines it as the, the, the Kármán line, which is a, a, a location that was, uh, uh, that was calculated by a Hungarian physicist called Kármán as the altitude at which air becomes too thin for you to fly an aeroplane. Because to fly an aeroplane at that speed, at that location, you have to exceed the orbital velocity. So you basically, to be able to fly at that uh, distance from the Earth, you'd escape. So right? that's and that's space. that would be space. space. So that's the that's the sort of European definition, and that's about oh, okay. about a hundred kilometers. So the Americans have a different one. The Americans do, <laughs> and the Americans have more than one as well, oh, depending depending on whether it's NASA or everybody else. <laughs> so NASA define it as around about 50 miles. And anyone that goes above that is defined as a, an astronaut. Excellent. But uh, the definition has actually changed. So recently, in the last couple of years, I think it was in 2006, uh, three astronauts were retroactively given the, t given the title astronaut because at the time they flew very high. But, but NASA's definition of space at the time was actually above where they flew. And NASA have now dropped the definition of space down to 50 miles. Huh. So now they've become astronauts, even though at the time they were just pilots. Cool. And our next question, why are little green men green? This is a really interesting question and one that I, I really liked. So, um, so I went and did a little bit of research. Excellent. And it turns out that the term little green men was in use well before it was synonymous with aliens. Okay. Right, so so it's been around in folklore and mythology, and like leprechauns, for example, are little green men, and there's loads of examples of things like that. Um, and it wasn't until the sort of 1950s that it became synonymous with aliens. For example, like in the in the 1940s, uh, some American newspapers used the term "little green men" to talk about camouflaged Japanese snipers, <laughs> <laughs> which I think is quite quite interesting. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's loads, there's loads of examples throughout history and throughout literature of little green men, Fantastic. even before uh, aliens. Uh, I thought they're made out of chlorophyll. Well, that's that's the other idea. So if they if if you come off and you ignore all that and you decide that they are actually aliens, so one good explanation which you which you just mentioned is that they could be made mainly of chlorophyll, like plants, yeah. and that could be how they get their energy. So instead of eating like we do, they just sit in the sun for a bit. And that brings us on to a really interesting thing. And the reason why plants are green is because uh, the sun's energy output actually peaks in the green. The type of star that it is means that it's a sort of yellowy green star, even though we see it as a sort of orangey yellow thing. The peak of its, uh, peak of its energy, peak of its spectrum is actually in the green. And it's also the point in the spectrum that our eyes are the most sensitive to. So maybe we see little green men because our eyes are just more sensitive to green than any other colour. Brilliant. So it's like, um, how do you know if something's not really another colour? It's only because we view it. It's the same time. Exactly. It's a, it's a pretty tough, yeah. tough question to answer. How do you know there isn't a lot of planets that we can't see because they don't emit anything? Okay, so the first thing I'm going to do 
is define a planet. Cool. So it kind of comes down to four different points, four different boxes that anything has to tick to be called a planet. It has to be in orbit around a star. It has to be sufficiently massive to be in hydrostatic equilibrium, which is a very fancy way of saying it has to be round. <laughs> and then it has to have cleared its local neighbourhood of other things. Basically, it has to have smashed into everything around it and cleared everything around it. And this is where Pluto fails, because there's lots of other stuff floating around near Pluto, around about Pluto's size. So it's not managed to clear out everything okay. around it. And then the final point, which comes back to the question about emitting things, is a planet can't be an energy source, like a star. Oh, okay. So it emits. So it can't emit anything. It can reflect. Yeah, that's why. But it, it can't emit. Bright. Mm -hmm. yeah. So that that kind of brings us on to how how do you detect planets? If they don't emit anything, how how can you detect them? And they're done by three three main ways. Uh, the wobble of the host star. So as a planet goes around the star, the planet doesn't go around the star. The star and the planet go around their common center of gravity, okay. so, which is normally very, very close to the star, if not inside the star, because the star's much bigger than the planet. But what actually happens is the star sort of wobbles a little bit. It's not completely stationary because it's not at the center of that system, and so we can detect that wobble. So even though we can't see the planet, we can see the star wobbling as so, if the planet was there. How do you detect the wobble? Well, that's using a technique called spectroscopy, where we, oh. break, we break up the light from the star into its constituent components. And because we know what the atmospheres of stars look like in, these, in, in spectra, and we know that they contain certain lines, certain absorption lines. So when you look at, a, look at the spectrum of a star, it emits at all frequencies, at all wavelengths. And then at certain specific wavelengths, that gets absorbed. And we can tell by at what point it gets absorbed in the spectrum, at what wavelength. We can tell not only what is in the star, but also what speed, what velocity it's moving away from us. And we notice when there's a planet around a star, those lines move backwards and forwards as the star wobbles. That makes sense. Uh, so then there's two two other ways as well, which are, which are becoming more popular now. One is transiting. So as the star, as the planet passes in front of the star, it blocks out a little bit of its light and makes the star appear fainter. So there are huge... Eclipse. Yeah, eclipses, yeah. exactly. So there are huge uh, projects going on to try and detect these things, one of which uh, is called Super Wasp, <laughs> which is the super wide-angle search for planets. So this is this is eight cameras that were bought on eBay, Really? monitoring huge quantities of the sky all the time, every night, to try and find stars that get a little bit brighter. Do you know where that's based? There's one in the Canary Islands, wow. which is monitoring the Northern Hemisphere, and then one in the Southern Hemisphere, which is in South Africa. And then the final way that they detect these things is through gravitational microlensing, which is really complicated, and it's when, uh, when, the st when the planet gets close enough to the star, it can bend some of the light from the star. Okay. It's and massive. make it because yeah. because it's big and make it a little bit brighter, and I think we shouldn't go into any more detail on that. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, next question: What would you think would happen when a black hole meets another black hole? Well, NASA actually performed some uh, massive simulations of this a few years ago, and up until a few years ago, that would have been impossible because this is such a complicated system—two black holes 
that it would crash any computer that you tried to run the simulation on. <laughs> so they managed to run this simulation using 2,032 computers, and it took them 80 hours to finish. So if that was done on one computer, that would have taken 18 years. Right, so they, they ran this simulation, and as you would expect, it releases a huge amount of energy. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's a really impressive thing. But unusually, it releases all of its energy pretty much all of its energy at least as gravitational waves so not as a not as an explosion not as light not as heat but as gravitational waves which are like ripples in space and and in fact it's so it's so powerful this this uh, collision of two black holes that it would release more energy in gravitational waves than if you added up all of the energy in all of the starlight from all of the stars in the universe wow that's a lot that's a lot and, then, there's a rule about computers, isn't there, that every two years they double in power or eight years or something. That's a Moore's law, I think that it is. It. it gets uh, twice as fast, Yeah, that was it. half as big, <laughs> or whatever, every so many years. Yeah. So that's why it's only recently been able to be done. Yeah. Um, and these, these gravitational waves are actually kind of interesting as well on their own, not just uh, in terms of noticing two colliding black holes, but we're actually searching for these things um, using gravitational wave detectors which most of them are like like uh, there's one called LIGO which is the laser interferometer gravitational wave observatory which is basically a big tunnel evacuated so it's got nothing inside it okay. apart from two mirrors at either end so is it a vacuum yeah cool two mirrors at either end and they're using those two mirrors to measure very very small variations in the separation between those two mirrors because that's what happens as space would ripple between these two mirrors oh, okay. it would get fractionally smaller and but then fractionally bigger as well, as yeah well. but it's it's has the same effect on the the path of the light so you would detect it by by noticing that as you bounce the laser between these two mirrors it gets marginally smaller and then marginally bigger okay and that would also uh, allow us to test Einstein's general relativity it would be like the final test <laughs> if if it passed that then we'd know that it absolutely described gravity what holds the sun up if the sun holds the earth up right so i think the first the first thing that we have to do is try and define up well, we gravitationally like but gravity yeah. gravity goes in all directions it's radial so so what's That's up true. for us is down for someone else so i think i'm i'm going to quote a passage from Brief History of Time by Stephen Hawking here, which I think is quite apt, quite <laughs> funny. Um, so, a well-known scientist, some say it was Bertrand Russell, once gave a public lecture on astronomy. He described how the Earth orbits around the Sun and how the Sun, in turn, orbits around the centre of a vast collection of stars called our galaxy. At the end of the lecture, a little old lady at the back of the room got up and said, what you have told us is rubbish. The world is actually a flat plate supported on the back of a giant tortoise. The scientist gave a superior smile before replying, what is the tortoise standing on? And the woman replied, you're very clever, young man, very clever, but it's turtles all the way down. <laughs> yeah, I've read that, I remember actually. <laughs> so this is, this is the problem, because there is no up. That's true. So basically, what holds it in place is that there's nothing to stop it from not being in place. Okay. So it's kind of, uh, it's bound to the sun, just like the... the the Earth is bound to the Moon by by gravity, kind of like if I swing a yo-yo around my head, okay. and I I hold onto the string at the other end, then I could be the Sun, and the yo-yo could be the Earth, yeah. and gravity would be the string. 
But what are you standing on? But what am I standing on? Yeah. That's the problem. Because <laughs> in space, I wouldn't be standing on anything. Yeah. So, so, yeah, because we can't define up, we have a big problem there. But I think uh, we can't actually answer that question because we can't define up. But it's interesting just to think about gravity for a second, because gravity is pretty cool, really. Right? Yeah. Because uh, I think we all forget how important gravity is and how, how all-conquering it is, because... All of the other forces in the universe, like the strong force and the nuclear force and the weak the force, model? the standard model okay, yeah, cool. of particle physics, um, those other forces that other physicists care about work on very specific scales. Over certain distance scales, they're the force to be reckoned with, okay. and everything else sort of fa fades away. But gravity works over much larger ranges of scales. Okay. So we all know just from every day that gravity works on a sort of an earth-sized scale because we're all held to the earth by gravity it's got practical applications it definitely has and and some downfalls as well but <laughs> and then it also works <laughs> on on even larger scales because the moon is tied to the earth and that's about four hundred thousand kilometers away uh, so that's already many orders of magnitude bigger than the scale of us tied to the earth but then the earth and the moon are also moving around the sun because of gravity uh, and that's 150 million kilometers away. So that's about 4,000 times bigger than the separation between the Earth and the Moon, which is already many times bigger than the separation between us and the Earth. So we're already covering a massive distance scale here, yeah. but it gets it gets even bigger because the Sun, the Earth, and the Moon are orbiting around the galactic center, the center of our galaxy, which is uh, about another billion times farther away. Right, and then And then our galaxy is in orbit with another galaxy called Andromeda, which is about another hundred times farther away than the separation between the sun and the center of the galaxy. So it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And then the galaxy in Andromeda are in orbit around a local group of galaxies. And that local group of galaxies are in orbit with another group of galaxies called the Virgo supercluster. Okay. And that's another factor of 20 bigger. So when you add it all up, not even considering the small scale stuff of us on the earth yeah. if you start and you say that gravity the smallest scale gravity acts on is the earth and the moon mm. which it isn't if you just take that yeah. as the smallest scale then in total you're moving 16 orders of magnitude just to get into that group of galaxies what's an order of magnitude times magnitude? 10 so that's like oh, a yeah. one with 16 zeros at the end does that mean there could be one galaxy or something huge that we're all orbiting around anyway Yep, it's possible, but it's <laughs> unlikely based unlikely. based on the based on how our understanding of cosmology. Yeah, we think that the universe is uh, isotropic, which means it's the same in every direction. Yeah, okay. Right, so if everything was in orbit around one particular point, that would ruin everything for us. <laughs> and the last question: How do we know that it's iron, like molten iron, in the centre of the Earth? I think this is a brilliant question. Because oh, I, I had a little idea about this before I decided to, to try and investigate it. Okay. The fairly obvious one, and the, the only reason I could think of, is to do with the Earth's magnetic field. Oh, yeah. So the Earth has quite a strong magnetic field. And to have a magnetic field, you need something magnetic. So having a big iron core, basically a big bar magnet in the centre of the Earth, produces that. But then there are other signposts towards having, a, having an iron core because fairly obviously we can't go down there and check yeah. that it's an iron core. So we basically have to use as much evidence as we can to conclude that it has got an iron core. So another thing that hints towards an iron core 
are meet certain types of meteorites called chondrites, and they have a very similar composition to the Earth. They're believed to be the kind of things that the Earth was formed from. So they were floating around the sun, and the 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 Earth sort of coagulated out of all of these all of these meteorites, and they have a much higher iron content than is in the crust okay. of the Earth. So that's a giveaway that there must be more iron somewhere, and it's probably in the core. Yeah. Uh, and then the real clincher, well, it's twofold. It's to do with uh, the density of the Earth. Yeah. So we know the density of the crust based on what we've dug up. Um, and from our understanding of gravity, we know that the the core of the Earth has to be much denser. And it turns out it has to be about as dense as iron. Okay. And sense. then we can check that that works by seismic waves. So if there's a if like there's an earthquake, earthquake waves, yeah. absolutely. If there's an earthquake on the other side of the Earth, we can check how it propagates, how it passes through the Earth, and based on what it looks like at the other end, we can kind of tell what it's gone through. Okay. And it turns out it's gone through iron, and and it's we're really lucky that we have an iron core, because. As we've as we mentioned, as we mentioned at the beginning, absolutely, absolutely, as we mentioned at the beginning, produces a magnetic field, and as you've just said, without a magnetic field, uh, the solar wind would hit the surface of the Earth, and would actually strip off all of the atmosphere. Yeah. So without without an iron core, we'd all suffocate. That's a good one to end on. Thank you very much for answering my questions. It's Thank been you. fantastic, and I've learned so much. So have I. It's been great. <laughs> Thanks for that, Dave and Emily, and that brings us to the end of this show. We're not going to read out any feedback this time, but please get in touch with us and let us know what you thought of this episode. Yeah, I mean, this episode has been a bit different to normal. Um, these students were GCSE and A-level students, so the content might be a bit simpler than what you're used to on the Jogcast. But let us know if you liked it. Is it something we should do again or should we just leave this at a one-off? You know, we, we aim to please. So please get in touch. You can contact us via the website at www.jogcast.net on the forum at forum.jogcast.net, on YouTube at youtube.com slash jogcast, on Facebook at jogcast.net slash Facebook, and on Twitter at twitter.com slash jogcast. Or you can send us some real posts and the address is on the website. And please do, because it's a summer, you know, if you're going on holiday, think of us, send us a postcard. Our postcard boards are looking very lonely. We haven't had any post for a while. All that's left to say is a massive thank you to Mohammed Abbas, Tanya Datta, Rosie Farthing, Yestin Jones, Emily Selman and Dominic Vizza for contributing to this episode. Honestly, guys, if it wasn't for you, we wouldn't be putting this show out. So thanks so much for giving up your time on your work experience. I know it's, prob- it's definitely not what you were expecting, but I hope you had fun. And also thank you, Libby. I hope you've enjoyed this experience. It's not been too daunting. Oh, I've had a brilliant time. Bit scary, but I loved it. <laughs> and we'll get you back for another one. Thanks, to Adam Averson, Jen Gupta, Dave Jones, John Pearson, Mark Perver, Jan Talbot and Paul Woods for being interviewed. The editors of this show were Adam Averson, Jen Gupta, Mark Perver and Chris Tibbs. Until next time, jod on. Bye, everyone. Bye.